Well, do take your Bibles and turn uh, with me to John chapter 4. Very familiar story and at a very familiar part in the story. We've been watching this together, this relationship developed between Jesus and this woman, the interaction that's been taking place now over two Sunday evenings. And uh, we had gotten to this point where Jesus tells her to get her husband and reveals the fact that he knows exactly about her life, he knows about her background, and yet here he is still speaking to her, still reaching out to her. It's an amazing act of the love and grace, compassion of our Lord Jesus as he speaks to this woman. And it's in that context that they start this very unlikely conversation about worship. I mean, where you get from water to you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, to him saying, you know, you've been, you know, you've had lots of men, and the man you're with now, you're living with him, and you're living in sin, and suddenly she plunges us into this conversation about worship that provokes from the Lord Jesus perhaps the clearest thing that he says about our worship. Isn't that an amazing thing? That God should use this woman to provoke this conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it says a lot. It says a lot about the dynamics, really, of the way in which God is working in the world, and that there is no one unlikely. There is no one so unlikely or unworthy that God can't use them in a remarkable way. He uses this Samaritan in this way. Now, what's being assumed as you read these words in this text? The woman assumes and Jesus confirms that God is to be worshipped. The woman assumes that worship takes place somewhere, that that is in a place. And Jesus confirms that worship takes place somewhere. That is to say, both the woman and Jesus are talking about worship, not in the kind of terms that we sometimes hear, that, that's certainly very popular at the moment in, in Britain among some of my friends, and that is that whenever you read the word, like, word worship, you're to think of all of life, every detail of your life, everything you do, every moment of every day, every activity you're in as an act of worship being offered to God. Now, there's a sense in which you can stretch it, and you can say that's, there's an element of that, not in this text, but there is an element of that, that in everything we do, wherever we are, whatever walk of life we are involved in, whatever work we do, we do it all to the glory of God, and to that degree, God is honored. But both the woman and Jesus are talking about worship as an intentional activity of God's covenant people gathered together somewhere. Neither of them is talking about worship in all of life, because Jesus would have had to take her word and say, okay, dear, uh, this is what you would say in Scotland, patronizingly, he would have tapped her in the shoulder and said, okay, dear, you've used this word worship. Now, I want you to know that I'm going to redefine this word for you. I know that in your head, worship is something you do when you gather with God's people and you sing God's praise and you think together of the excellences of God as His covenanted people. 
I don't want you to use that word that way anymore. Okay, let's redefine the word first so that you don't get it wrong or you'll misunderstand everything that I'm going to say from this point onwards. Now, he doesn't do that. He assumes that she knows what he's talking about and, and that they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about the public worship of God. And Jesus confirms by his reply that she is right to assume that God is to be worshipped intentionally and corporately by his covenant people. So there's the assumption. That's what's assumed by the text. So what does what Jesus teach then positively about worship in relation to this conversation he has with this woman? Well, first of all, he teaches her, teaches us that true worship is shaped by God's program. True worship is shaped by God's program. Consider, for example, what is being questioned in this text. What is the subject? What is the issue that she raises with Jesus? It was a, a real issue between Jews and Samaritans. What is it about? It's about the place. It's about the somewhere. It's about where can true worship take place to be true worship. She's a Samaritan. She worships in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. Jesus is a Jew. He worships in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which is the right place to worship. But there's something more. Do you notice that when Jesus revealed her past to her in verse 18 or 19, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, that's, that is not just a passing thing. That isn't just her kind of fobbing him off or trying to say something polite to him. She is saying something quite important for the unfolding of the next few verses in this section, in this chapter. She is recognized in Jesus by his ability not only to know what her background is, but to be quite specific about her background, she recognizes in Jesus that he is a prophet from God. Which is why she feels that he is competent. I mean, my, my impression about this woman is that she is feisty, but she's also a very intelligent woman. And she understands that this is a man that she can talk to about one of the issues that is on her mind. And it's the issue of worship. And so she asks the question about the place of worship. And it's in answer to her question then that Jesus uses a very solemn prophetic introduction using prophetic language and makes this statement. He said to her, Woman, believe me. Listen up. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's making a prophecy. He's doing it precisely what she has said he would do. He is a prophet. He is making a prophecy. A prophecy, by the way, that would be fulfilled in the year AD 70 when, the, when Titus, the Roman general, comes with his troops and he attacks Jerusalem and he sacks the city. He he breaks down the walls, and he completely demolishes the temple. And all that's left of it is one wall that you can still see in Jerusalem to this day. And so what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting a shift in the history of God's dealings with humanity to this lady. He is highlighting a shift in redemptive history. He is saying to her, redemptive history 
that is the whole process, the whole progress of God's dealings with men and women in the world that you see as you read the Hebrew, Hebrew Scriptures, redemptive history has reached its omega point. It has reached its omega point. The end of the ages has begun to dawn upon the world. And now the focus of worship is no longer going to be an earthly temple in a specific location. Now the focus of worship, the environment in which we worship, is going to be focused somewhere else, indeed upon a person. Spiritually speaking, in the larger context of John's gospel, worship is to be focused on that crucified, resurrected Messiah who would serve as the substitute for the Jerusalem temple, as the new center for worship for God's people. And Jesus, in his conversation with her, begins to challenge some of her language that she's used earlier. She had said, she had spoken of the fathers. The fathers worshipped here. Jesus speaks to her of the Father. And the, the, the phrase he uses or the words he uses when he talks about worshiping the Father, that's a direct object, a dative of personal interest, suggesting a personal relationship that is a new kind of relationship created in the life of a genuine worshiper. From this point on, he says, people will worship the Father that is in a relationship with the Father. Now, this opens up a whole new can of worms. And John has been getting us ready for this right from the very beginning of his book. And we've noted that along the way. Let me refresh your memory just in case you forgot. I won't test you. I'll just tell you. Because Paul, John, whoever it is that's writing this, John, uh, has begun right from the very beginning of the book to call or to refer to Jesus as a temple. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen His glory. Two ideas there that are linked to the temple. The idea of the tabernacle, the forerunner to the temple, and the idea of glory. You know that in the tabernacle and in the temple, it was the glory, the Shekinah glory of God that descended on the tabernacle, on the Holy of Holies, as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And that, that sign, that glory, that Shekinah was a, an indicator of the presence of the Almighty God of Israel present with and among uh, in the center of the corporate life of Israel. It was a great picture. But now you see that special revelatory presence of God that came as cloud and fire has been replaced, he is saying there in John 1.14. By the personal arrival of Jesus Christ in flesh. Now the glory of God is not seen in cloud and fire. It is seen in flesh and blood. The Word became flesh, tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is resting in the physical, bodily flesh of Jesus Christ. And then in John 1.51, Truly I say to you, Jesus says again uh, to uh, 
one of his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, there's a reference to Genesis 28, where God appeared to Jacob, the father of Israel at Bethel. And in response to Jacob, Jacob built a miniature sanctuary. And it was there that he had a vision of steps descending from heaven to where he was on earth, with angels going up and down these steps. One of the points of that vision was that Bethel, which is the name of the place, he named the place Bethel, was a temporary sanctuary connected that connected heaven to earth. That's what temples did. Connected heaven to earth. The Word became flesh. Jesus connects heaven to earth in Himself. He is the eternal Word who created, and He is in flesh created stuff. Jesus connects heaven and earth. And that little sanctuary that uh, Jacob built there at Bethel was the precursor of the larger temple that would be built in Jerusalem, which became a permanent address where God's presence in heaven was linked to earth. And now Jesus describes himself there in John 1.51 as the final temple, the final dwelling place of the living God, the acme of the glory of God, so that a person does not need to travel to Jerusalem or anywhere else to be near God's revelatory presence all they need to do is to trust in Jesus. I'll go to John 2, 19 to 22. Jesus draws the attention of the people, the leaders of, of Jerusalem, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and he says to them, you destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. The Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You think you're going to do that in, in three days? And the apostle adds the comment, the explanatory, the explanatory point. He says this, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus has spoken. The resurrection fulfilled the promise. Jesus raised the final temple. He raised the final temple at the resurrection. And then here in John 4, there have been temple allusions here as well. Jesus offers this woman at the well living water that would spring up to eternal life. And that would bring home, at least to Jesus and uh, to us reading, because we've got the whole of the Old Testament to draw forth from echoes of Ezekiel's vision of that final end-time temple, where he sees a river springing from underneath the Holy of Holies and then exiting the temple. And wherever that river goes, that river of living water goes, Everything will live where the river goes, says Ezekiel. Joel and Zechariah say the same thing. A spring will go out from the house of the Lord. Living waters will flow from Jerusalem. Jesus is offering living water to this Samaritan woman, the water of life, springing up to eternal life in her heart. Back in chapter 2, we saw Jesus changing ritual water into wine. Then he goes and cleanses the temple. And he speaks about his resurrection as the new thing, this new thing that God has done. In other words, what Jesus is saying to this woman is, this moment, this moment is a mega moment in the unfolding of God's eternal purposes that have been going on through the years. You're the first to hear about this. You're the first person to hear about this. 
This is the mega moment. This is the moment that represents a shift in the historical redemptive purpose of God. He didn't use that language to her, of course. But that's what he was teaching her. This is, this is absolutely pivotal. The hour is coming and is now here. This matrix, time, dispensation, this hour, ultimately we'll discover in John's Gospel, the hour comprehends the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and then the session, the sitting of Jesus at the right hand of God. This hour was to mark a break with the past and the fulfillment of the past. It was to bring an end to the sacrificial system practiced in Jerusalem and in Gorizim. It was to bring the powers of the age to come into the present. True worship. True worship is, let me find my point, shaped by God's program. And then secondly, true worship is grounded on God's revelation. I want you to notice that in this conversation, Jesus doesn't feel what, I don't know whether you've ever felt this. I've sometimes felt this in talking to someone. I always remember uh, we had a, a new neighbors moved in across the road from us. When I was growing up, new neighbors across, uh, lived, moved in. And, and, uh, and I was only 15 or whatever, uh, 14 or 15, maybe 14 or something. And uh, I, did, I did happen to notice the daughter. She was very pretty. And, and I just noticed that in passing, obviously. But uh, that did kind of look for her from time to time to see if she was around. And, and I, I remember one occasion we got on the bus together. I was so shy. I was terrified to talk to the girl. But um, I kind of felt maybe I should uh, witness to her. <clears throat> I, I didn't really have very many skills dealing with the opposite sex, you understand. But I did think that maybe I should witness to her. And, and uh, I, I remember trying, uh, just stumbling over the words and I actually was so impressed with this girl up close. She was even more impressive up close than she was from a distance. I was kind of overwhelmed, really. And, and I, I didn't really want to embarrass myself talking to her. But I did embarrass myself, completely embarrassed myself, and ended up by giving her a tract and, and walking away. One of, that was it, by the way. I discovered later on the Mormons got to her, which was really bad. Uh, <clears throat> one of my big failures in life. Uh, but uh, I don't know why I told you that story, except to say that, <laughs> except to say this, it came into my head. But except to say this, that you know, one sometimes when we're talking to people and we're impressed for one reason or another by them, we we kind of dry up or we 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 forget what we're going to say or we we kind of want to minimize it. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to say the tough stuff. And what is remarkable about this conversation between Jesus and this woman is that Jesus isn't afraid to say. The tough stuff. He, he does not, for one moment, fudge the fact that there were differences between this woman's religion and his. He doesn't fudge that. Notice what he says to her. He says to her, you worship what you do not know. Now, that was a good line. You're ignorant, he's saying to her. We worship what we know because salvation is of the Jews. Jesus anchors true worship in the revelation of God given in the Scriptures on divine revelation rather than speculation or innovation or experimentation or tradition. And what he was saying to her is, people 
are not free to restructure worship as we like. That was the problem with the Samaritan way of worship. After their schism or schism, and I don't know which you say in this side of the pond, but it's a schism or a schism, whichever you like. After their schism, their break with Judah to the south, the Samaritans or or, or the northern Israelites had, had built up their religion over 700 years with reference to only a fraction of the Word of God. They rejected whole swathes of the Old Testament, and they had an alternative temple here on Mount Gerizim that they'd built about 400 B.C. So Jesus tells her straight, he says to her, you worship what you do not know. He's telling her, teaching her this lesson. Proper worship is predicated on adequate and accurate knowledge of the God who is worshipped. We're not meant to worship ignorantly. We're not just meant to worship like spraying the sky with a machine gun, hoping that one of these things is going to get God. That's not the way we're to worship. Without what has been revealed, without revelation, without what God has made known to us, without the Bible in our perspective, without that Bible received and taught and believed, people will worship in ignorance. They'll invariably inject into their worship all kinds of ideas, traditions, superstitions, speculations, practices that have no biblical warrant. This is what happened to the Samaritans. It's what happened in the Middle Ages. It's what happened in the early days of the church when, when shifts took place in the practice, practices of the church. The Word of God was sidelined. Over the Middle Ages, what happened? There was a shift from pastors being teachers like St. John Chrysostom or, or Augustine or Augustine or, or whatever you, however you want to pronounce that, that guy, And these guys preached the Word of God. They taught the Word of God. They instructed people in the Word of God. But as time passed, what happened? A number of things happened. And you can see this in some of the churches in Rome. There's one church I think of particularly, San Clemente. And San Clemente is on three levels. If you go to the lowest level, it's very interesting. There is a first century street. You can walk on the street. The, The stones are there. You walk on the stones. There's a little spring that was the that area, spring, that, that serviced the homes. You can go into the various rooms of the homes. The, the, the outside walls are intact. The walls of the rooms are intact. There's a little Mithraic temple at the far end. And one of those rooms belonged to a man called Clement, who's mentioned in the New Testament. And the believers met in that, when it was a home, they met in Clement's living room. And then somewhere around 300 and something, The emperor was converted, and he had lots of cash, and he wanted to build houses or or basilicas, that is, public meeting places for Christians to worship. And you can see that third, fourth century building. You can see it if you go up to the second floor. They just built it. That's what the Romans did. They just built on top of things. So they would remember what had happened beneath. And, And you can go there, and you can see what it's like. And you know it's the most amazing thing. It's, it's this shape of building. But in the middle of it, there is an area that is walled off, a little wall up about this height, walled off. And uh, there's a, there are four little portholes on each side of, of, the, of, the, of the square. And it's exactly the dimensions 
of Clement's living room. Because these new believers didn't know what to do with this big thing that had been built for them. They had no idea. So they came together, as they'd been doing for years. They met in their little boxed-in area that reminded, was their safety place and, and comfort zone. And then any of these new Romans, the Romans, you see, uh, now that religion, uh, now that Christianity was uh, authorized, they could come and listen. They could come and, and observe. And they came in. What did they see? They saw these people sitting around here. They had a little psalm. Somebody read the scriptures. They maybe baptized somebody. Somebody got up and gave a sermon. And to begin with, the crowds were great, but after a while they got bored. Those who were converted, they got baptized, and they got to sit in <laughs> Clement's living room. Actually, there's a 14th century church built on top of that, the third level. And what they've done is reproduce that same model. that You can see what it looked like in that 14th century church. It's amazing. But what happened was this. People got bored, and they went back to their pagan temples. And so people thought to themselves, you know, what we need to do is learn from the pagans. We need to kind of make our worship more Roman-friendly. So they, they like, the Romans just like theater. So why can't we do something a bit more theatrical? The pagan temples, they have an altar. Why don't we take our Lord's table that we sit around in the middle, take it, and we'll put it on the east end where they have their altars. And why don't we just make more of the sacrament of the supper and, we, and, and make that the kind of central part because it's more dramatic and you can make it more dramatic. And if you dress up, you make it even more dramatic. And so over time, over hundreds of years, there is an evolution takes place to accommodate the tastes of the pagan people in the community and over time, Theology is re-theologized to explain what's going on in the service. And these shifts took place microscopically. Nobody, nobody thought what it was going to look like at the end of the show. These were microscopic changes. But they were changes that had no authority in the Word of God. And what, this, what the Lord Jesus is saying to this woman is... You worship what you do not know. Your worship is not shaped by the Word of God. You've made changes. And over the hundreds of years you've been doing this, those changes have become even further away from the original thing so that today there's no comparison with the way it was in the beginning. No comparison. You worship what you do not know. And I'll give you one illustration, I think, in our contemporary culture, church culture, which I think holds within it the potential for a serious deviation away from biblical worship. And it's the increasing role of a worship leader. Uh, now, this is not a comment on any form of music, but it's the role of the worship leader as it's defined in certain circles. And here's, here's how it works. People will say this when so and so leads worship. I feel caught up into the presence of God. I feel God far more present when we, He's singing or we're singing with Him than any other part of the service. Two things are going on there. One, the music is becoming a sacrament. And two, the worship leader 
is becoming a priest. You take the trajectory of that, another hundred years, where will we be? Where will we be? Music is not a sacrament. Music is a vehicle for us to praise God. That's all. It's a vehicle for us to praise God. It was Schopenhauer, the German liberal, who taught that there was, and who was an atheist, by the way, who, who taught that music had some kind of tran transcendental power to take us up into the kind of ideal of the universe. It is a servant of the praises of God's people. I just throw that out because it seems to me that all of those are deviations from what is written in the Word of God. And Jesus says to this woman, you worship what you do not know. He goes on to stress the divine revelation again when he says to her, salvation is of the Jews. Now, there was a slap in the face to a Samaritan. Salvation is of the Jews. Isn't that a bit exclusive, Jesus? That could very easily be a barrier. That could have been the end of the conversation, but Jesus doesn't let it be the end of the conversation. And he doesn't let it be the end of the conversation because the Jews were wrong to keep their knowledge to themselves. And so Jesus makes a very powerful point. He says that the Jews stand within the stream of God's saving revelation so that they can be a vehicle of that revelation to the world. That was... God's intention so that they could be a revelation, a vehicle of that revelation for the world. I mean, in the, in, the, in the Jewish scriptures, not in the Samaritan, but in the Jewish scriptures, it says this, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. God is known. Again, in Isaiah 2, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jesus doesn't hesitate to state the Samaritans' ignorance, the Jews' status as the chosen people through whom God's redemption was to be brought to others. And he announces to her that both the Samaritan worship on Gerizim and Jewish worship in Jerusalem are now obsolete. They're obsolete. He is doing a new thing. Well, thirdly, true worship is focused on God's glory. The hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Just notice that. Focus on God's glory. What is God like? Focus on God as a spiritual being. Israel had always believed that. That's why Israel was not to make idols in the form of anything, because God was spirit. That's why they weren't to be like the surrounding nations because there was nothing they could conceive of or find that in any way represented God. And because God is spiritual then, true worship has more to do with the spirit than the flesh, the interior rather than the exterior, the substance rather than the form. And the only sacraments, the only physical elements in worship that are prescribed in the Bible are baptism and the supper. Worship has been simplified. Now, it's one of the effects of sin in our race that we tend to pervert or deform the worship of God. We make it about us, whether it's aesthetics, how beautiful it is, whether it's entertainment, how amazing it is, 
whether I get self-fulfillment, whether I'm given well-being, a sense of well-being and comfort. Jesus is saying to this woman that the proper subject and the proper object of worship is God. It is for God. Look at that. Verse 23, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He is looking for worshipers among sinners like this woman who need a Savior. In fact, this woman is going to say later on, she's going to be the first person to say this. She's going to go on and she's going to announce to her people that this was the Savior of the world. Worship is for God. It is directed towards God. It is to God. And in worship, the chief end of God is God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, so what is new then? What is this new thing that Jesus is talking about here when He says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth? Now, some people want to translate those words, spirit and truth, with lowercase letters because they think the main emphasis here is on worship being sincere rather than hypocritical and internal rather than external. That's already been covered. God is spirit. And that isn't new. You find that in the Old Testament. God is always in the Old Testament emphasizing the fact that the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him and that uh, these people draw near to me with their mouth but not with their heart. God is always interested in the heart worship, even in the Old Testament. So what is this new thing? Well, the new thing... I think is highlighted to us, first of all, by the expression, the Father. That was Jesus' distinctive name for the first person of the Holy Trinity. The Father. He taught His disciples to say, our Father in heaven. And then He defined Himself by His relationship to the Father. Well, you know the Father did that when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved Son. Jesus, when He was cleaning the temple, said, this is my Father's house. He repeatedly, in John's Gospel, says that He was sent into the world by the Father, that He shares with His Father in giving life, in raising the dead, in judging the world, that the Father has given to Him, Jesus, life in Himself. Proper worship. He tells the Samaritan woman is worship of the Father, first of all. In spirit. And John's Gospel, by the way, every reference to pneuma, that is the word for spirit, is a reference to the Holy Spirit except in two cases. Perhaps in two cases. Chapter eleven thirty-three and 1321. It's the Holy Spirit, for example, that gives spiritual life. We're born again, born of the Spirit, he's told us in chapter 3. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us into the realm of God, the kingdom of God. Back in chapter 334, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit without measure, we're told. He offers to give this woman living water that would quench her thirst for eternity. 
He says to this woman that if she drinks the water that he will give to her, there will never be, she will never be thirsty. The water that he gives to people will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 11, he defines what that water is when he says, when John comments about the rivers of living water, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And later again in John, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, I'll give you another comforter to be with you, the Holy Spirit of truth. I will send him in my name and he will teach you all things. So I think, given the trajectory of John's gospel, when we're told that we're to worship the Father in spirit, it should be perhaps understood as in the Holy Spirit, sent by the Son, breathed out by the Son, bearing witness to the Son, bringing glory to the Son, the Spirit that links people to God in spirit and truth. In John's gospel, sometimes the truth is the truth about Jesus. But this word truth is also used in a personal way. Truth is not only about Jesus. Truth is Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth because he is the exegesis of God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. In John 8, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The truth and the Son, one and the same. John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the Spirit's job, we learn in chapters 14 through 16, the Spirit's job in the world is to turn the spotlight onto Jesus. In other words, what is new when Jesus says, the time of coming now is when something brand new has come into the world? This is a new shift in the history of God's dealings with humanity. What is new is this, that from this point on, people will worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. There will be clarity, and that clarity becomes even clearer as we go further on in John's Gospel. The proper object for Christian worship, then, is the one in three and the three in one. I cannot think of the one without thinking of the three. I cannot think of the three without thinking of the one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Athanasius says that true worshipers worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, the Lord Himself, confessing the Son and in Him the Spirit. True worship. Isn't that an amazing revelation to give to this woman at the well? It means really that nobody here can't get it if the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see it. True worship, as Jesus describes it here, is shaped by God's purpose, grounded in God's revelation and focused on God's trinity. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would please take your word and write it in our hearts and 
Fill us with your spirit that we may see your Son, the Lord Jesus, high and lifted up and exalted, that we might glorify you, our Father, on the day that you visit us. Help us in our prayers to know who we're talking to. Are we talking to the Trinity? Then we may speak to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, as one God. Are we talking to you, Father? Then we come to you through your Son, by the Holy Spirit helping us and lifting up our prayers to you. We talk to you, Son of God, our Savior. Then we do so with the help of the Holy Spirit, acknowledging you to be the Son of the Father. Do we call on you, Holy Spirit, to come to fill us, to use us, to bless us? We do so as the one Spirit breathed out by the the Son and coming to us from the Father, who together with Father and Son are one God, now and evermore. Hear us, we pray, this evening as your people, in your triune name. Amen.